person's identity reveals something about their character and destiny. And there was a large university that held a number of events for their incoming students. And the final event was a reception. And it was held with the president, present, the administration, and their spouses, along with all the incoming students. And they were mingling around on the lawn when an older woman approached one of the prospective students. And she said, how do you like things so far? And he said, well, I think it's a pretty good school. I kind of like everything except for one thing. So then she said, well, what is that one thing? And then he said, well, it's, it's the president of the school. The guy's an old fuddy-duddy. He's a stick in the mud. They should put him out to pasture and come up with some new creative ideas. And then the, young, the woman was just gasping, and she said, well, young man, but do you know who I am? And he goes, no. And she said, I am the president's wife. And then his response was, do you know who I am? And she said, no. Good. <laughs> Sometimes we do that in their lives. And there, there are many characteristics that make Jesus Christ's life distinctive. And every Sunday we celebrate the biggest reason. And that was what I just mentioned in my prayer. We celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to focus on Christ's identity this morning. We're going to focus on the fact that He is the King of Kings, that He is the Lord of Lords. And then we're going to look at the fact that we have some responsibility in all of this as well. In Luke chapter 9 comes on the heels of Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people. And He's really popular right now. People are saying, you know, free food for everyone. Like, come get fed by the teacher from Nazareth. So it would be front page news. So, so to say that people were clamoring to get to Jesus is an understatement at this time. So we notice Christ's identity in Luke 9 verse 18. When Jesus was alone praying, His disciples came to Him and He asked them, What do people say about me? And they answered, Well, some say that you were John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet from long ago who came back to life. So let's stop right there. Like we're faced with choices and we're faced with decisions about who Jesus is. And what does the world say about Jesus? Like just as back in the first century, the world sees Jesus in a variety of ways. There was an article in a newspaper that said that Jesus was a Palestinian revolutionary. They said that he was a cynic sage, a social prophet, a mystic who preached cultural compassion. And the same type of things that were said back in the first century are being said about him today. So if you think about it, what the disciples shared with Jesus were some pretty positive rumblings that they heard about him as they were traveling throughout Nazareth and throughout Galilee. So in their best effort to compliment Jesus, they shared, well, we've heard that you're a great prophet. We've heard that you're like Elijah. Some of them think that you're even John the Baptist who has come back to life once again. That people think that you're a really good man. But the more you dig beneath the surface, that's when you hear people today say, well, Jesus was a good man. Like, I don't buy into that entire story about him. 
but his words are very compelling, and I know that his teaching is something that we can actually use today, as long as he doesn't teach that his way is the one and only way. But if Jesus was merely a good teacher who could captivate a crowd with his lessons and fool them with his miracles, then there's no reason for us to even be here together to worship this morning. Like C.S. Lewis said, you cannot merely say that Jesus Christ was a good man. He has not left that option available to us. For if he is not the Son of God as he claims, then he is a terrible liar and not a good man. So with Jesus, it's either all or nothing. Regardless of what the world might say, we need to understand that. <clears throat> so what does Simon Peter respond when Jesus asks him, Who do you think I am? Because Jesus decides, okay, these guys have been listening to everybody out there in the community, so now I'm going to turn this inward and ask them who they think that I am. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus then asked them, Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah sent from God. And then it says in verse 21, Jesus strictly warned his disciples not to tell anyone about this. And you wonder, like, why do this? Why tell them to be silent? Like, let the news get out there. But he isn't ready for all this news to travel throughout the crowds just yet. He wants to slow that down just a little bit. But we give Peter credit. He's got the answer. Like, you see sometimes in a classroom setting, a teacher asks a question. And then Johnny puts up his hand, no, that's not right. And then Susie puts up her hand, that's not right. And the teacher goes through a whole group of kids until finally one person has the right answer. And that's what it's like here with Peter. Peter has the answer. But the Gospel of Luke kind of has the Cliff Notes version of this. So in Matthew 16, 16, we actually see the full version of what Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here is Jesus asking this question while they're standing in this idle, infested area of Caesarea Philippi. Peter's probably looking around him at all these dead idols to all these unknown gods. And then he says, You are the Son of the living God. That's what makes the difference between you and all these other gods that we see around us here. So Peter responds by saying that, that Jesus is the Lord of life. And several months later, Jesus actually proves it by defeating the grave and coming back to life. But Peter wasn't the only one who concluded that Jesus was the Christ. And pretty well everyone that he encountered, that he took the time to get to know, came up with a similar conclusion. Like with the angels, they said, well, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. John the Baptist said, Behold the Son of God, the Lamb of God is even the way he put it, who takes away the sin of the world. Ask the demons and they'll say, what, what do you want with us, Son of the Most High God? And then Judas, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Then Pontius Pilate, the man who sentenced Jesus to death on the cross, said, I find no fault with this man. The centurion who was the one overseeing that crucifixion, said, Surely this was the Son of God. And then Thomas, 
he said that he thought that Jesus was actually the Christ. And he fell before him on his knees and he cried out, My Lord and my God. And then asked Peter, who in his first gospel sermon said, This Jesus, whom you crucified, has become both Lord and Christ. So let's ask the same question of you here today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Some of you might say, well, I just don't know Jesus all that well. I can't put my faith in someone that I don't really know that well. I don't read the Bible very much. I've prayed very little in my life. Like how can I have faith in someone that I know so little? But you know something? You do that all the time in your life. Let's say that you just moved to Halifax and you became ill. So you go and find a doctor that you've never met. That doctor tells you you have some condition that you can't pronounce. And then that doctor writes out a prescription that you can't even read. And he says, take that to a pharmacist. So here's a pharmacist that you've never met. And they give you some pills that you've never tasted. And he says, here, take three of these each day. Like, we trust people all the time. We have faith in people all the time. When you leave here today, you come to the first intersection and you see a green light. You go through that in faith that the people coming from the opposite sides who have that red light will stop. Hebrews 11.1 1, Faith makes us sure of what we hope for and gives us proof of what we cannot see. So we have so much evidence to bolster our faith. We have the eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts, excuse me. We have words of prophecy from the Old Testament. We have historical and archaeological evidence. We have a perfect written record that has transcended time. And it's just as current today as it was 2,000 plus years ago when it was written. And we have seen millions of Rosie Ruiz competed in the 1980 Boston Marathon and she cheated. But she was the first woman to cross the finish line and she was four or five minutes ahead of all the other women. But there were some concerns here because she had never run in the marathon before. No one knew of her. And then with a little investigation, they discovered what she had done. She took a taxi for the from, she ran one mile and then took a taxi until a mile from the finish line and then she waited until she thought the lead pack of women would be around that area and she ran the final mile to cross the finish line. And one of the uh, reporters who was there took her aside and he was very perceptive and he said, Madam, you are either the fastest woman on the face of the earth or you are a fraud. That Jesus Christ is either the Messiah, God's living Son who came into this world to die for us and conquer the grave, or he is a fraud. Like there's no middle ground. He's the Messiah or he's a fraud. And if he's a fraud, then he pulls some of the most amazing hoaxes in history. He fed over 5,000 people. He fooled them all into thinking that he had produced food from this little meal that a little fisher boy had. Then he healed people. He even fooled people by bringing others back from the dead. Then he allowed people to kill him. And he recovered from a beating that over half the people die from. 
Then he was put into a tomb and it was sealed and there was no air in that tomb. He survived in there for two days without water and without food. And then on the third morning, he somehow got up and rolled that huge boulder away from the stone. Then he took on this battalion of soldiers that were there guarding him and he somehow convinced them to tell a lie that what had happened hadn't really happened. And then he went and talked to all of his friends and he convinced them to be tortured and imprisoned and murdered for what they knew to be a lie. So what do you say? Is he the king of kings or is he just someone who faked his way through his life and faked his way into the record books? At the end of this message, you will have an opportunity to respond to that, to give your final answer. And if you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and you accept him, it will totally revolutionize your life. Picking up in verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, the nation's leaders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law of Moses will make the Son of Man suffer terribly. They will reject him and kill him, but three days later he will rise to life. So we see the chapter now shift gears a little bit. Now Jesus begins to acknowledge the fact that he is God. He acknowledges his impending death and his resurrection. So now we move into our responsibility, our reaction to all of this. But one thing that I thought would be amazing to do would be to coach the St. Mary's Huskies men's hockey team. I have three daughters that were amazing athletes, but I ended up coaching sports like soccer and volleyball. I never got to coach hockey. So I thought, you know, it would be great to coach the St. Mary's Huskies. They won the national championship. But then I also have to confess, I might not be that great at a portion of that job. And that is the recruitment aspect. Because I would have to go up to 18, 19, 20, sometimes 21-year-olds, and I would have to tell them what the school expects of them. That they would have to be a team player, they, that this would be a winning team, so we will try to develop you in that way. But I've got to be honest with you. If you come to our school, you have to go to classes every day. You have to keep your marks above a certain level. You have to stay out of trouble. If you don't intend on doing those things, then go somewhere else. That would be so hard to do, to recruit people for your team, but then lay down the rules. And if they don't follow those rules, let them go somewhere else. See, there's a sense in which I'm a recruiter for Jesus Christ. And after his resurrection, he told his followers to go into all the world and make disciples. And that's what I do. That's what all of you do. So part of my job is to enlist people on the Lord's team. He promises that we will have victory over sin. He promises that we will be developed through the Holy Spirit, that we will become stronger as we live our Christian lives. But Jesus alone can make those promises. He's the only one who can fulfill them because he is God. And he proved it by rising from the dead. And we host potential recruits here every Sunday morning. 
and we hope that we make a good impression. We hope that you'll like us and that you'll come back again. We hope that you'll join our ranks one day, but we don't want to recruit you under false pretenses. But the Lord already has too many followers who think just showing up once in a while on Sunday morning when it's convenient is what being a Christian is all about. Like there's a daily requirement that's talked about here. There's a high standard that he expects. Jesus identified himself as the Messiah. And then he said, I'm going to die for your sins and I'm going to be raised from the dead. So I expect you to commit yourself to me. So in verse 23, then Jesus said to all the people, if any of you want to be my followers, you must forget about yourself. You must take up your cross each day and follow me. So that verse suggests three words or three concepts that we need to pay attention to because they are required of us as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they're not popular with some people, but they're absolutely essential if Jesus Christ is going to be the Lord of your life. And that first word or concept is a hyphenated one, and it's self-denial. That's almost like a four-letter word in our society today. It, it means you must forget about yourself. But we're in a, an era of self-indulgence. And most parents in North America don't teach their children self-denial. Like if our children want something badly enough, we give it to them. And I'm hoping that as a grandparent, that I'll be a, a little more into self-denial with my grandson. But I doubt it, and I'll probably spoil him like all other grandparents do. But this is an age of affluence. It's an age of giving into our gratifications. And if we want it, we buy it. If it feels good, do it. If you think it, then say it. Don't hold back. But I've got to be honest with you. If you're going to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, then self-denial is going to be required. And this has to do with our instincts. Like Peter said this in 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, you are foreigners and strangers on this earth. So I beg you not to surrender to those desires that fight against you. So the Bible teaches that there are certain desires that if we give into them, it's basically going to pull us down. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to be people who make conscious decisions to restrain those impulses and allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our lives. Maybe you've struggled with lust and you want to give in to immorality. But if you're a Christian, you deny yourself and you seek fulfillment only through the boundaries of marriage. Or maybe you get angry so easily and you want to retaliate physically and verbally. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you deny those selfish impulses and you express kindness. Or you're greedy and you instinctively want to cheat on your taxes. So when, but you're a Christian, and when you're filling out those taxes, you don't put in any things that you could get relief from. The words disciple and discipline come from the same root word. And if you're going to enlist in the program of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to practice some self-denial. The next concept is sacrifice. You basically need to take up your cross each day. 
Now, in the first century, the cross wasn't an ornament like we see with so many people today. The cross was an instrument of torture and execution. It wasn't something that they wanted to look at. And when Jesus died on that cross, that he wasn't forced against his will, he didn't die a martyr's death. He voluntarily went to the cross for each one of us. It was a sacrificial death. He chose to give his life as a payment for our sins. So in John 10, verse 17, the Father loves us because I give up my life so that I may receive it back again. No one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I have the power to give it up and the power to receive it back again, just as my Father commanded me to. So there's Jesus telling us that we're going to have to take up our cross. We're going to have to voluntarily make some sacrifices for Christ and for other people. And this has to do with giving up our time, our resources, our talents. In Philippians 2.4, Paul wrote, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there he goes again, talking about this attitude that we need to have. It should be the same as Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself. Now, no one is going to have to sacrifice themselves here and, and give up their lives. It's a voluntary thing when you sacrifice in any way whatsoever for Jesus Christ. No one will track what you do individually, but I want to tell you up front what our goals are. We encourage the members of our church to give at least a tenth of their income back to God. The back in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were required. It was an automatic thing. When they harvested the crop, they took 10% of that crop and brought it to the temple and gave it back to God. In the New Testament, we don't see that 10% talk about. We see, give as you have been prospered. And we're living in a day when we've been prospered beyond what we can imagine. So maybe we can even go beyond that 10%. We have another goal here, and that is that each member of the church spend an hour in worship each Sunday. Just one hour, that's all, to be with God's people in that way. And then we also encourage people to spend one hour in Bible study with another group, in some type of small group or home group. So you not only study the Bible, you experience communion. And that one hour, I'll be honest, stretches to a couple of hours because you talk to the people in your group. And then maybe you'll watch a hockey game afterwards and it might stretch to three or four hours. But it's a great group of guys, so you don't mind that. And then the third thing is we encourage you to put one hour into service each week, but to sacrifice your best talents for God. Now, sometimes it's easier for people to give their money than it is to give their time. But we encourage you to sacrifice your best talents for the kingdom of God. It might mean you're part of something like the worship and arts ministry where everybody sees you. It might be something more behind the scenes where you cut the grass or do something with the building. It might be yeoman work down in the nursery or teaching in Halifax Kids. There are so many different areas that people are serving in in this church. Dozens of people are giving the church their best energy, not the leftovers. Jesus said, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
then all these other things will be added to you as well. And then he also said, you must take up your cross each day and follow me. So the final thing that we're asked to do is submit. Once again, like we've got no idea of what it's like to truly submit until we look at the example of Jesus Christ. See, we're into leadership. You go into a bookstore, and the shelves are lined with books on how to be a great leader. And there are all kinds of leadership conventions and summits that we attend. But we never hear people talk about fellowship. It's always leadership. Bumper stickers say, question authority. It's never follow authority or submit to authority. But in James 4, 7, Jesus' brother said, Surrender to God, resist the devil, and he will run from you. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then there's a submissive, humble mindset that's required. But protective pride says, I don't feel like going to church this week because I was at a fundraising golf tournament on PEI yesterday and I get home at 20 after 12. But I have to speak tomorrow, so I have to get up that next morning. Uh, protective pride says if you want to follow Jesus Christ and He is going to be the Lord of your life, then you're going to have to actually forget about that pride and submit to His word just as a private submits to the general. And his word says, don't neglect meeting together. Just get up and go. Intellectual pride says, I don't want to speak up for the Bible in the classroom because people will think I'm ignorant. But if Jesus is going to be the Lord of your life, then you speak up because he said so in Luke 9, 26. If you are ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when He comes in His glory and in the glory of His Father and the holy angels. Stubborn pride says, I don't feel like forgiving that guy who lied to me. Like, I want to get even. I don't want to forgive. But if Jesus Christ is going to be the Lord of your life, then you're going to let that go. You're going to follow His word and you're going to forgive as you have been forgiven. The first person I baptized was Curly Estee. He was 84 years of age. He's actually the oldest person that I personally baptized. He was afraid of water and kind of had one arm up on the side of the baptistry as I put him under the waters of baptism. But when he came up out of the water, he, he was just a glow and his eyes were filled with tears. And why would a man be baptized at that age? It was because he had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He believed that Jesus had died for his sins. He believed that Jesus had rose from the dead, and he submitted to him as Lord. And in God's word in Mark 16, 16, it says, Anyone who believes me and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe me will be condemned. So Hurley was willing to do what Jesus had commanded, even though it was tough for him to do. A commitment to the Lord involves self-denial. It involves self-sacrifice. It involves submission to Jesus as Lord. And if you're a Christian and you don't have a church home, then we'd love to have you commit to this church, to commit to HCC. We'd love to have you involved here. If you've never become a Christian, 
And then we invite you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We invite you to experience that same joy that we are. Because just like early, we've taken Christ into our lives and He has forgiven us of the sin in our lives. Please stand as we sing together.